Uh, hopefully you have a sermon outline. Turn there so we can follow along. Uh, we have a long passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 through the first verse of chapter 11. It's 34 verses, so we're going to do those as, sort of as we go through. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and uh, we always are in need of it. We need to be reminded of the gospel and the cross and Christ and the glory of God. And we need to know the sufficiency uh, of your word for all the problems of our lives. We need to know that whatever uh, idolatry we struggle with, whatever idols we allow into our lives, the answer to that is found in Christ. Whatever we struggle with as a church, the answer to those issues are also found in Christ. Thank you that 1 Corinthians points us to Christ. We need him. Bring us to him. Bring us to the cross. Bring us grace. Give us mercy. We pray by the power of the Spirit. Help us see Jesus. Amen. Amen. Tim Keller tells a story uh, about a man who is a professing Christian who is very well respected, very well known, very much admired, very acclaimed because he was very competent and uh, <coughs> he was very skillful at what he did. But as is <coughs> excuse me, uh, often the case with successful people, he had a substance abuse problem in his life, and uh, he hid it very well, but eventually it came out. And when it did, he lost everything. When it was made public, he lost his job, and uh, he lost his home, he lost his family, he lost everything. And sometime later, Tim met with him as he was starting to rebuild his life. And uh, he was struck that this man was poised. He was calm. He seemed to be at peace. He had over overcome those areas where he lacked self-control. And he said, I'm a professing Christian, and I always said that what matters the most is what Jesus thinks of me. But that's not how my heart operated. My heart operated on two uh, functioning principles, which were, first, by my competence and hard work, I could control what people thought about me. And secondly, what people thought about me was all that really mattered. I said what mattered was what Jesus uh, thought about me and how Jesus valued me. But my heart was saying what really mattered is that people valued me. And I could control that with my performance. That drivenness was what got him entangled in substance abuse in order simply to keep himself going. But when it all fell apart, he said, you know what? I finally arrived at a place where nobody loved me. Nobody respected me and nobody valued me. Nobody valued me, not even me. Not my wife, not my kids. Once they realized what a hypocrite I was, no one but Jesus valued me. When you get to the place where the only person who values you is Jesus, 
because you have no other options, finally you just start to rebuild your life on that. I just couldn't seem to do it until I lost everybody's admiration but Christ's. But I know God loves me in Christ, and as a result, it was the one thing I had left that I could build my life on. And when I started to build my life on that and not care what anybody else thought, I lost my need to do all those things. I lost my need to control what other people thought about me. I lost my anxiety. I lost my drivenness. I lost my addictions. I lost them all. And as I read that, I found throughout this week it really haunted me. Why? Well, I wrestle with that. I think it came down to, I don't think most of us want that to be the way we find out how much Jesus values us. You know, we like the idea that Jesus values us. We just don't want to lose everything to discover that. We don't want our life to fall apart. We don't want everyone to dislike us and to ridicule us and to be humiliated. We would prefer to skip that part. We don't want to find our value that way. I don't want to get to the place where I say, I know I'm finally building my life on what Christ thinks about me because nobody else thinks anything good about me. When that happens, when you're finally forced to do what the gospel says, which is to make Christ what matters most, and then start living within the blessings and power of the gospel, which he gives to you. And then you should, as we've said for the last few weeks, follow uh, a look to Jesus for our value, consider Jesus for our motivation, follow Jesus for our significance. But the reality is, I think this is so hard, because most of us don't do that. Why not? Because I don't think there's any doubt biblically that Jesus values us. But we often find things to value more than Jesus. And the Bible actually has a word for that. It's idolatry. Idolatry is one of the big issues in the Bible. Uh, both Old and New Testaments, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings, as we have here in 1 Corinthians. It is the core sin problem that faces all of humanity. One commentator wrote that the history of humanity is the history of idolatry. So what's an idol? An idol is anything we look to in order to answer a question that God has already answered in Christ. Am I loved? Am I significant? Am I valued? Many of the idols that we look to are actually common things, uh, even uh, perhaps good things, include education, career, possession, security, relationships, approval, reputation, romance, other people. And when these common things, when these good things become ultimate things, they become idols. I feel I have to have this to be happy. I have to have this to feel loved, to feel significant, to feel valued. And when that happens, we're engaged in idolatry. So it would be easy at this point to ask, so what are the idols in your life? What are the things competing for first place in your heart? 
Some of you will have a hard time answering that question. Maybe some of you are thinking, come on, Dave. I'm not an idolater. I'm a Christian. I only worship God. Maybe. Maybe not. You see, it's most difficult for us to see the idols in our own life because we're so close to them. It's much easier for us to see the idols in somebody else's life. But they're found all around us, and in particular in this culture that we live in. We're surrounded by them, we just don't see them. Sometimes we don't even realize we're bowing the knee to an idol. We presume that because we're Christians, idolatry isn't our issue. And that's one of the big problems facing the Corinthians. The danger of presumption. The danger of presumption. That's the first blank there in your outline. Starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, this past year, we went through a series last uh, winter and spring uh, that we called the most misused and misunderstood verses of the Bible. And while we were going through that series, we looked at this passage. And I did a whole sermon focusing in on verse 13. So I'm not going to be focusing in on verse 13 today since I did a whole sermon on it last April. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it again. But why come back to this text? Well, besides the obvious fact that it's the next passage in the series. Um, Partly it's a good reminder uh, for us that a passage we think we know still has something to teach us. But it's also because it shows us that basically Everything in the Bible, even a passage like this, which doesn't seem to be about Jesus, is actually all about Jesus. Everything. In fact, that's what the church is about. We're not out just to bring you to church. We're not out to bring you to a minister. or We're not out to bring you to a philosophy or a style or a type of music or anything like that. Although there may be lots of things about Potomac Hills that might be distinctive and special for you, but we are out to bring you to Jesus. 
Everything is about him, or should be. The music, the preaching, the church, all about him. But people forget that. All people, everywhere. Reminds me of an old Western called Shenandoah. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie. It takes place in Virginia, but it's a Western. I don't understand either. Um, But when they were making Westerns back in the 1960s, that was common. Um, Anyway, it's this old classic starring Jimmy Stewart, one of the great actors of that era. And there's one scene, they're at the, uh, the, the ranch house, and they're all gathered around the dinner table, and everyone's looking at Jimmy Stewart to say grace. So they can start eating. It's actually it's a big farm. And uh, he says, well, Lord, we planted this, and we fertilized this, and we watered this, and we broke our backs harvesting this, and then we cooked this. But I guess we have to thank you for it anyway, so amen. <laughs> and, of course, you could argue where would you get the hands and eyes uh, to do that, where would you get the brains to do that. Uh, and so on. You could certainly argue that they didn't actually make it grow. God did. But the point is how quickly we presume that we have something because we deserve it, we earned it, and therefore we have a right to it. And that same attitude of presumption dogged the Israelites, and so Paul uses them as an example. So with those things in mind, Paul sets out to highlight circumstances from the history of Israel and do so in a way that shows they're just like the Corinthians and their circumstances. So the situation that Paul has in mind primarily deals with the exodus and all the events that followed it, and he wants them to see the point, although the Israelites were clearly set apart as God's special people, had received many spiritual and supernatural benefits from God himself, nevertheless, verse 5 With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And if you're at all familiar with the history of Israel, then you know that an entire generation was lost in the wilderness. (coughs) They never made it to the promised land. Their bodies were literally uh, strewn across the wilderness for 40 years. One by one, they all dropped dead. It'll get better. But this is Paul's point. If the people of Israel are not spared from God's wrath because of their idolatry, and almost all of them were destroyed, what does that say for the Corinthians? And their foolish belief that they're somehow safe from the consequences of their own idolatry. Paul very clearly draws a conclusion from this in verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul's pretty direct, yet he doesn't stop there. He goes on to give specific examples of how the Corinthian situation was not only like the Israelites in terms of their experience and what they received from God, but there's parallels between the things the Israelites were doing and the things the Corinthians were doing. So let's start with verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Old Testament passage that Paul's quoting from is found in Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. God's people, after leaving Egypt, gathered at Mount Sinai. They're waiting for Moses to come down for a meeting with God. It was taking a long time. They got tired of waiting. So they enlist Aaron 
to make an image of God for them to worship. And Aaron does and fashions it in the form of a golden calf. And of all the things about idolatry that Paul might have quoted from, from Exodus 32, that he chooses to quote from the second half of Exodus 32, 6, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Why that verse? Because of the parallels with the Corinthian situation. People of Israel are engaged in blatant idolatry, eating and drinking in the presence of a golden calf, clearly an idol, among other sins. And God's judgment against them on that day was great. But what are the Corinthians doing? They're insisting on their freedom to eat and drink in a pagan temple filled with idols. So there's a parallel. Following that, Paul continues, verse 8, points out their idolatrous behavior. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Most likely, the reference here is to Numbers 25, where the people of God engaged in immorality with the people of Moab. But what's interesting about this is the account in Numbers makes it clear the Israelites had been attending the feasts and sacrifices of the Moabite gods. So the immorality that they got entangled in and for which they were punished came about because of their involvement with the feasts and sacrifices of a pagan temple. The very same situation the Corinthians were unwilling to let go of, in which they insisted was harmless because they were claiming an idol is nothing. And so in short, Paul's words here indicate an additional problem with their attendance at the pagan temples was the possibility of them getting involved with some sort of immorality. And to those examples, he adds two more, verses 9 and 10. Refers to incidents that took place in Numbers 14, 16, and 21, all of which involved God's people complaining and not being content with what God had given them and grumbling against both God and Moses, his appointed leader. Again, with disastrous results. Every one of these judgments, people die. Lots and lots of them. But now thinking about the Corinthian situation, it's not too difficult to see the parallels that the apostle has in mind. Some of the Corinthians are annoyed with Paul, disagreeing with him on several issues and grumbling and complaining about it in the process. And they resented the fact that they're being asked to give up certain things that are near and dear to their hearts and to be content with what God's provided for them. So the overall point is fairly clear. Paul's showing how the Corinthians are no more special than the Israelites, who weren't spared the anger of God when they strayed. And if God doesn't, didn't hesitate to judge them, why would he hesitate to judge the Corinthians? And so Paul tells them, he answers his own question, verses 11 and 12. These things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has fallen or the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So if we're going to be faithful to the text, then we need to take heed of the warnings and the encouragements found here. We need to hear Paul's warnings about stubbornly resisting God and his encouragement that we should have great trust in God and simultaneously great distrust 
of our own hearts. We need to hear about uh, how numbering ourselves among the people of God doesn't make us immune from the consequences of our own idolatry. God didn't hesitate to visit his people with discipline and judgment in the past. He won't hesitate with the Corinthians, and he won't hesitate with us. Now, to be sure, we don't live in a situation where we're surrounded by uh, large pagan temples, and we're not being invited by every other neighbor and coworker or classmate to attend a feast at one of those things. And yet we are no less prone to idolatry than they were. We have no fewer opportunities for idolatry than they had. Just our idolatries come in different packages. John Calvin said the heart is an idol factory, which means that this is a problem that every single person has. Historically, the major idols of the Western world revolve around money, sex, and power. Biblically, the major idols of the heart revolve around pride, lust, unbelief, and selfishness. I don't know what your idols are, but I know you have them. Now, Paul's prescription, his antidote for idolatry, will largely revolve around the Lord's Supper. But here he tells them that their idolatry is screwing that up too. And so next he shines a spotlight on the danger of compromise. The danger of compromise, verses 14 through 22. You know, there's something about a meal that binds people together. It's part of our culture. You know, we love people with food. We express care for each other with a meal. It's part of the social fabric that holds us together. Very much the case in Paul's day, too. Who you ate with was all about your loyalty and your associations and your affinities and your connections. And Having a meal established a bond with people who you eat with talks about loyalty and fellowship and relationships, and we still do that. It hasn't really changed. And that's what's behind these verses, verses 14 through 22. Uh, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So these sacred meals, whether they're meals in church or pagan meals in pagan temples, establish a bond between those eating, the worshipers, and the spiritual reality being invoked. So once again, the concern here is idolatry. See in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the concern. Everything else Paul says is designed to show why that's necessary and important. At the end of the previous section, we saw Paul tell us, you know, with every temptation, God in his grace 
provides the way of escape. And here is counsels. It's simply this. When the way of escape comes, take it. In the face of idolatry, don't try to tough it out. Don't try and explain it away. Don't try to push through. Just get out of there. Flee from idolatry. And Paul wants us to see why idols are so dangerous. But he starts out not talking about idols, but by talking about the Lord's Supper. In verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul's teaching that the Lord's Supper establishes and deepens a real spiritual bond. He calls it a participation. And it does so along two planes. First, establishes a fellowship, a communion, a participation with Christ in his body and blood. That's the vertical plane. But it also establishes a horizontal plane that says, we who are many are one body. We are one in Christ as we eat from the one bread. And so the meaning of the Lord's Supper travels along these two planes, both vertically and horizontally, simultaneously. And so he establishes the significance of the Lord's Supper, but then he says, you know, you're doing the same thing with the sacred meals taking place in the pagan temples. Paul's telling them, just as communion is not an empty ritual, neither is eating at the altar of pagan temples, of pagan idols, an empty ritual. Those who eat at the pagan altar participate in all that the pagan altar means. So if you've been with us as we've been working through Corinthians, and you may remember back in chapter 8, Paul agreed with the Corinthians that idols are nothing more than wooden stone. They were saying idol has no real existence. It's an empty thing. They're not real gods. They're nothing. So is Paul contradicting himself here in chapter 10? See, implying that idols are, in fact, real after all. Well, he's way ahead of us. Look at verse 19. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he still says the idol is wood or stone, but it's not harmless. When we're deceived into false worship, it's not nothing that we're worshiping. Certainly there's no such thing as uh, Apollo or Artemis or any of the false gods invented over the years. The God that you create for yourself is not the God who is there, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we dabble in false religion, Paul says standing behind the deception remains a real spiritual presence. Satan and his demons are real. Evil is real. And Paul is saying it is not safe to go there. It is not safe to dabble in that. And it gives you the scenario that the Corinthians are sitting at the Lord's table on the Lord's day. And then on Monday, maybe for a business meeting, they're going to the temple of Apollo. And maybe they're there with a the business associate. And at the start of the meal, a sacrifice would be made to whatever patron god their business associate uh, wishes to invoke that day and the corinthians are rationalizing that by saying we know that an idol is nothing there's no god called apollo apollo's nothing no harm no foul 
Why offend my business associate? I don't want to lose this business, so I'll just go along. But don't worry, I know better. And to that, Paul's saying, not so fast. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Don't kid yourself that you can compromise with the world and follow Jesus at the same time. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking. Horoscopes, Ouija boards, New Age healing, Eastern religions, whatever other mystical spirituality the world offers, doesn't matter. I think even things that many Christians are involved in, the whole mindfulness movement, yoga, a number of martial arts that all have uh, uh, origin in Eastern religions, have to be looked at carefully. None of these things are harmless fun or alternate sources of personal wisdom. There are some level expressions of idolatry, fundamentally incompatible with the worship of the living God who's revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's really a call for discernment. Examine what you're doing. Don't just do it and go along with it. And of course, there's people in the church who are now hearing Paul teach about this and they're going aha I told you not to do that I told you not to go there I told you not to eat that you should listen to me I know which brings us to the third problem in the Corinthian church and that's the danger of legalism the danger of legalism starting at verse 23 all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So all of that's crystal clear, right? And now you know exactly what to do. Let me give you the silver nail summary. So Paul. You've told me not to do the idol thing, but I can eat the meat, even if it comes from the pagan temple. But don't eat the meat in the pagan temple. But what if it's the only place to get the meat? And even if I eat, get the meat, don't eat it around the stupid people. I mean the weaker brothers. But I'm not sure who the weaker brothers are. And what's their beef with beef anyway? I'm confused. Can't you just give us a rule to follow? And while we're not wrestling with questions about the pagan sacrifices at Wegmans, the question <laughs> behind the question is still relevant. What am I allowed to do? 
What are the limits here? How do we make those decisions? Can't you just give us a rule to follow? And Paul answers them actually with a warning about making specific rules, but at the same time encouraging us to follow general principles. And the main principle that he brings out here is to be careful with the conscience. Be careful with your conscience. Be careful with your brother's conscience. Be careful with your sister's conscience. There's repeated references here. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold without raising any question of conscience. Verse 27, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Again, verse 28, for the sake of conscience. Twice more, verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So what's the issue here? What's Paul teaching? He's teaching us about the liberty of conscience, but how we need an informed conscience in order to navigate the challenges before us in a way that's faithful and honoring to God. And the problem seems to be that you have some people, one group, who isn't considering conscience at all. And others seem to have an overactive conscience. And to make matters worse, one group is largely Gentile believers and the other group is largely Jewish believers, which complicates the dispute with both ethnic and class distinctions. So one group is asking, how far can I go? You said all things are lawful. And to them, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. See, when you're asking about limits, how far you can go, generally you're thinking about yourself. And Paul is telling you to start thinking about others and what's best for them. Now, the other group is saying, why should I consider what the others want? I'm right. They're wrong. I'm going to do what's right. They never add, and I'm going to look down on them for doing what I think is wrong, but that's probably going to happen. So you have this tyranny of the weaker brother. And these two groups are at odds. And so Paul asks them, he finishes by telling them to consider one overarching question. What action will bring glory to God? Verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If exercising your freedom in Christ brings God glory, do that. But if not exercising your freedom brings God more glory, do that, because it's not about you. Will limiting your freedom in order not to offend bring God glory? Do that. Will limiting your freedom bring God glory by helping others come to Christ? Do that. Paul's actually giving us a series of tests from chapters 8 through 11 that help us to... um, Make our own decisions. Help us determine if we're being careful with the conscience. So he says, all things are lawful, but will it lead to freedom or slavery? 1 Corinthians 6, we saw that argument. Will they make me a stumbling block or a stepping stone? We saw that in 1 Corinthians 8. Will they build me up or tear me down? Verse 23. Will they please me or will they glorify God? Verse 31. Will they help me to win others to Christ or will it turn them away? Verse 33. The way we use our freedom and relate to others indicates whether we're mature. 
And strong and weak Christians need to work together in love to build one another up and to win others to Christ. Paul says we need to glorify God by seeking the good of our neighbors. And we do that by not giving the impression that we're saved by all of our good works and our amazing performance. But we also do that by not giving the impression that anything goes. I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want. That's the principle about being careful with the conscience. Of course, every situation is different because all the people we deal with are different. So how do you know how to live before unbelievers? And the answer I would give is, you don't until you get to know them. So don't look for a specific rule. This is how you need to act with unbelievers. You actually have to get to know them in order to apply these principles to this situation. If I eat the meat and then tell them about Jesus, will they laugh? Or will they listen? You know, and as I studied this passage uh, this week, I was convicted by verse 27 more than any other verse in this whole uh, chapter. Because it says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, when was the last time an unbeliever invited you to dinner? I could be wrong, but I don't think it's common for unbelievers to invite church people to dinner. Why not? Could be a lot of reasons. Uh, One could be that uh, we're misrepresenting what we're all about by emphasizing things that aren't as important as the gospel. It could simply be that we don't know very many unbelievers. That's common in the church. At least not well enough to have them invite us to dinner. And if unbelievers are ever going to have you over to dinner, you have to seek their good and show a genuine interest in them. You have to get to know them. And if you know them, then maybe you'll know what would lead them to the gospel, what's keeping them away from the gospel, what's confusing them. Well, that depends. They're not all the same. You'll have to get to know their story before you can know what causes them to stumble. You're called to glorify God. And one way to do that is by seeking the good of your unbelieving neighbors. In order to do that, you have to get to know them. And when you get to know them, you need to seek their good, not your own. You have to be careful with the conscience, both theirs and yours. And that means you may have to give up your rights. You may have to sacrifice your wants because it's not about you. Because somebody else sacrificed everything for God's glory. Somebody else sacrificed everything that they may be saved. Somebody else sacrificed everything so that both Jews and Gentiles would be included. Somebody else sacrificed everything for him and her and the stupid people and the weaker people and the I hate rules people and the we need more rules people and for you and for me. And obviously, his name was Jesus. And it's all about him. And you need to remember that when that dinner invitation comes. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Our Lord and our God, thank you 
that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Lord, we confess that we often love ourselves in a way that allows us to justify our lack of love for others. So teach us to look to Christ. And as we look there, remind us of how he loved us and he gave himself up for us, how he sacrificed himself in his pursuit of us. And would you begin to remake our hearts and remold our lives that we might begin to display a similar selflessness as we seek to bring you glory, as we seek to build up and not make stumble our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, and our friends. Help us seek so to adorn the gospel by the way we live that others, by looking at us, might understand how powerful the gospel we proclaim really is. Forgive us when we made ourselves the center of our own decisions, our own agenda, our own ends. Help us to love our neighbor, to love your glory, to love the salvation of sinners as we imitate our Savior. Grant that we may live like people who love you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.